And I offer you no intriguing or challenging introduction to the sermon today other than to point you directly to where we are heading. And to do this, let's read the first verse from next week's sermon, verse 13 of 1 John chapter 5. I write these to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, this verse is both a perfect summary for the book of 1 John as well as a perfect summary for the passage that we are studying today, 1 John 5, verses 1 through 12. Here's what I mean. The first portion of verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. This points directly to verses 1 through 5 with its conversation about faith and specifically the object of our faith, Jesus. Now, the second portion of verse 13 reads that you may know you have eternal life. And this encompasses the two themes that you see occurring in verses 6 through 12. One is eternal life or what John stylistically refers to as life. So eternal life, life, and then the assurance of one's salvation. So imagine with me, if you will, verse 13, serving as our compass to guide us through verses 1 through 12. Verse 5 in chapter 5 is also a significant verse because it's going to thematically pull everything together for us. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes in Jesus being the Son of God. See, faith, faith in Jesus is the victory that overcomes the world. So what kind of faith are we speaking of today? It's the kind that the Apostle Paul referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 57, where he said, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who overcomes the world? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 1 in our text. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So let me ask you, what is the object of your faith? Is Jesus the object of your faith? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe that he is the Son of God? See, if a person's faith does not have Jesus as its object then this person is not a Christian. They, are not, they do not have Christ in me. Because true Christian faith has Christ as the object of faith, and this is the first order of business, John tells us. Secondly, he says, those who love the Father have been born of Him. Now, this sounds a little like the proverbial, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? What does come first? The act of believing or the event of being born of God. In a practical sense, it's like asking which comes first, the birth of a baby or a, a child's first words. We would unanimously say, I think, well, the birth obviously comes first. Well, in verse 1, it says, everyone who believes, and that's translated for us there, given to us in the original language in the present tense of a verb, meaning this present continuous belief, this continuous faith. And now the word for born here is given to us in a different tense, though. It's given to us in the perfect tense, meaning having been born. This birth has taken place, but there's these continuous results 
from that birth. And a perfect tense verb means a verb with complete action, but abiding results. So this birth in Christ leads to other things. In plain English, our continuing faith, our continuing belief is part of a past event. Our birth in Christ, having been born in him, born of God, born again. And God's the one who initiates this new birth. God is the one who initiates this salvation. We don't. So faith is both a gift to us to believe in him, and it is a sign of new life in Christ. Well, the Apostle Paul spells this very message out really clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. So it's important that we take a few moments and read that today just to hear what the Scriptures are saying. Verses 1 through 9. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's not of works that anyone can boast. God is the gift giver, the giver of salvation, which is a gift. God is the author of our faith. And verse 1 in 1 John 5 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Well, what if we just stop there? You know, it sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? it sounds like a, a faith with no conditions. A faith with no strings attached. Sounds like a nice, easy faith to adhere to. It's just like asking someone, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And stop there. And asking no questions about how someone's walk with Jesus is going. Or asking nothing about the person, uh, how they're living their life. Are they loving God and are they loving their neighbor? Is this person obediently following the Lord through his word? No, I have to tell you, many commentators have said that Christianity in the West is a mile wide and an inch deep. Why would they say something like that? I think partially because of questions like I have just raised here that are going unasked in the church. Thus, those questions are unanswered in the church as well. You know, the end of verse 1 says, everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. Now, look at verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. See, love is not an addition to our faith. It is a vital part of our faith. And John is saying a person cannot say that they love God and they're one of God's followers and then just break God's rules. Love divorced from obedience to God's commands is not love at all. You know, a few decades ago, a very talented black artist named Tina Turner with a powerful voice, had a chart-topping song, What's Love Got to Do With It? Okay? And the chorus went, would repeat itself in the song, What's Love Got to Do With It? Got to Do With It? And it even goes on in that chorus to say, uh, to call love a second-hand emotion. 
Well, the Bible doesn't list love as some kind of secondhand emotion. And it no way lowers the bar, you know, uh, in asking the question in a denigrating way, what does love have to do with it, have to do with it? John says, love has everything to do with our faith. He said it is an activity of obedience in light of what God has revealed about himself and who God is because God is love. And in light of what God has revealed about life itself, love is essential in all of that. And he says love is not some kind of sentimental, emotional experience exempt from moral content. No, 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 no. It's just the opposite. So let's apply this teaching. If a person says they love God, but they never open their heart to God or never open their heart to others, they never open their wallet to God's work in this world, they never lift a finger to help other people out or to especially help a fellow believer out, is that real faith? Or if a person says they love God, but their sexual ethics and their sexual practices are no different than the world around them. Well, I am the way I am because I love all people. And love wins. And, 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 and you know, that's why I love people so anything goes. Well, John says, is that really true faith? And if someone says, I love God, but they care more about their possessions, care more about their wealth and their status... Such faith, John says, I don't think is the real thing. Here's what real faith is, verse 3. In fact, in fact, this is love for God. To keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Oh, but following God's standards, following God's guidelines, following God's commands is so burdensome. You know, I can recall from my senior year of college, which is four decades ago, so I'm really dating myself here. But I took a, a human relations class, which was a 400-level class, which is frankly humanism is what it is. And humanism is man is the measure of himself. That's what humanism is in a nutshell. And I took this class, and it was a Monday night class, three hours every Monday night for a 16-week semester. And each week we would talk about one of those elements of, of human relations, which was just nothing more than humanism. And Christianity was getting slammed literally every week in one way or another and other religions too and, and so forth. But on this particular night, they were talking about religion as, as the subject. And they were in par particularly really ripping on the moral majority and Dr. Jerry Falwell. And I certainly wasn't in agreement with everything that was going on there. And I didn't feel a need to just jump up and defend Dr. Jerry Falwell in particular. But they really started ripping on Christianity. And particularly downplaying the importance and the value of the Ten Commandments. And you're sitting in class and your throat's, you know, just all tight and your heart's beating and you're sweating a little bit. And, and you're like, Lord, I need to say something. You know, give me the words to say, Lord. And finally, you know, most of the way through the class, I put my hand up to respond. And I said, you know, I'm hearing people complaining that, that, that Christianity and faith in particular is, is so burdensome. Like the Ten Commandments. But think about it this way. It says, thou shalt not steal. Wouldn't it be something if you could leave your house and leave it unlocked and never have to worry that anybody would ever come and steal or take anything that you own away from you, plunder you? Or thou shalt not kill? That you could walk down any street in any city in the United States of America and, and inner city, didn't matter the color of your skin, and you would not have to worry about being assaulted, not have to worry about being killed or that you would die or anything like that. 
Or could you imagine marrying someone, thou shalt not commit adultery, and spend the rest of your life with that person and not worry a single day that they're going to be unfaithful to you, they're going to be disloyal to you? Or could you imagine living your entire life and not ever have to worry about being falsely accused of something? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I said, it sounds burdensome to you, but this isn't a burden. In fact, God intends for us to, to live this kind of life so we're freed up to enjoy life and live the beautiful life that God intended for us. You should have seen the looks on their face. The professor and these students are... Because they desired that life. That's the life they want. And they say that's the life that religion is, Christianity is taking from them. You know, that's the life they want, but they don't want to have to obey or, or be instructed in any of these commands. What John is saying here is that there is this inner love for God that believers have that creates a desire for obedience. You know, Dr. John, James Montgomery Boyce says, the life of God within makes obedience to God's commands possible. And the love that Christians have for God and for others makes his obedience, disobedience, desirable. John is saying to true believers, God's commands are not burdensome. And why is this so? Look at verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Why are they not burdensome? Why are they not too heavy for us to carry? Because by faith, we do not carry them alone. We're born of God. And, and, and faith in God is what wins the day. Now, there's a very popular uh, running shoe in the United States of America right now. It's been around for about five decades and invented by a track coach from the University of Oregon. And uh, they've got a famous swoosh on the side so you can get running shoes, basketball shoes, cross-training shoes, even walking shoes. This company produces very famous. What's the name of that, that shoe? It's what? Nike, right? Everybody got that? That's from the Greek word Nike. Nike, but, it's, but, but it, they pronounce it Nike, which means, and their motto, of course, is just do it. Well, that happens to be the Greek word here in verse 4. That's the Greek word for victory, as if we can wear these shoes and, and we can accomplish whatever we desire to accomplish in our own power. We can just do it. We can get the victory. Nike, we can do that. Well, you know, I pole vaulted for 10 years competitively. And the last six years, Nike shoes were available. And because I was part, you know, competing predominantly in the Midwest, specifically the last four years, collegiately, um, there weren't a ton of indoor tracks. In fact, there were only two in the state of Wisconsin at that time, and none of them uh, could you wear spikes on. They were tartan surfaces, similar to this, but a little bit softer, but it was like that. So you had to have a good racing flat that you, you wanted to use. And the inventor of the Nike shoe, Nike shoe actually invented his shoes by experimenting using waffle irons. So if you see the inside of a waffle iron with that indentation, he would put all kinds of glues and rubbers in there and experiment with that and then put them on shoes. 
And that's how he created the Oregon Waffle Racer, which was a sprinting shoe that I used. Uh, and it had no cushion on it whatsoever. It just had those little waffles, protrusions sticking out. But when 70% of your competition as a college athlete in season occurs indoor, you had to have a shoe that could grip and so you could do it. Just do it so you could get the victory. Well, John says we gain the victory. We just do it, but it is through God's Nike, God's, you know, gift to us in Jesus Christ crucified and his present power uh, within us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And, you know, the Apostle Paul said the same thing in Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 13. He said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can love God. I can love others. I can obey God's commands. I can do it through him and only through him. And he is the one who gives me strength. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, in the Bible, faith is a noun and it is a verb. Faith as a noun is what we believe in. And as a verb, it is what it means to live out what we believe. So who is it who overcomes the world? The ones who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So I ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And are you living out that belief in your life right now? Are you living out that truth in your marriage, in your family life, in your career, in your community involvement, in your hobbies, in every aspect of your life? Are you living according to that belief? Because true faith has Christ as its object. And love and obedience are its results. So if faith is a victory, and many people profess, profess faith in God, but there seem to be a lot, particularly in the West, not living it out, who then is really saved? Who is truly a Christian? And are you even saved? Or let's take this a step further, as verses 6 through 12 do. Do you have assurance of your salvation? Because how do we know we have eternal life? Or let me put it this way, can we know if we have eternal life? The answer is yes. Yes, we can know that. The Bible teaches that in 1 John 5, 6 through 12, that we can if we accept the testimony of God concerning Jesus. Now, if you took a quick look at those seven verses there, verses 6 through 12, and you just did a quick flyover of those verses, you would notice there's a word that keeps occurring over and over and over again. It is the word testimony. And understanding what's said here about testimony is key to understanding this text. And the word is used eight times here, and seven of those eight occurrences are used in reference to God. Generally speaking, we live out our everyday lives recognizing the testimony of other human beings as being reliable. That, that, that's true in the court of law. It's true in the issuing of checks. It's true in our scheduling of appointments and, and checkups. It's true in the paying of our bills and in the receiving of medical diagnoses and tests. It's true in the making of purchases both in person and online. With that knowledge now, look with me at verse 9. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which he has given us about his son. The point of this, this, this section is that if we accept human testimony, which we have to every single day, 
We have to rely on people and accept their testimony of, of that they're telling us the truth and we're scheduling appointments, we're doing all this stuff and getting paychecks and all these things. We have to accept that as true. We do that to live our lives. We do that every single day. How much more should we trust the testimony of God, the divine testimony about his son, Jesus, which is what? Verses 6 through 8. This is the one who came by the water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. So we've got three witnesses here. God has given to us. We've got the water. We've got the blood. And we have the Spirit. Okay, okay. We've got three witnesses. What does that mean? That's kind of confusing, isn't it? What does that possibly mean? Well, throughout church history, there have been six major views of this particular uh, section of Scripture. And I'm going to share them with you and share which you, one I really believe uh, represents what this text is teaching. But some throughout church history believe that this was a reference to the Bible, which I personally don't think makes a lot of sense. Other than that, the Scriptures were written, uh, they're the written testimony of God. The second view, this one was held by Martin Luther. He believed that this was a reference to the two great sacraments in the church, to baptism and Eucharist, to the water and the blood. And certainly this is an interesting observation, but, but there is no sacramental theology anywhere presented in this particular epistle, 1 John. And it, so it doesn't fit the context of the book, and it doesn't even specifically fit the context of this pericope. So I think that one's out. A third view, and this was parallel to the New Testament one, but took it as an Old Testament uh, reference, and this was held by another church reformer, John Calvin, very famous, you know, that's where the whole Calvinistic theology uh, comes out of. But he believed that it referred to the Old Testament rites of the law with water representing the ceremonial and the ritual cleansings and the blood representing the animal sacrifices for sin, kind of basically covering the ceremonial law in the Old Testament and the moral law in the Old Testament. A fourth view, which I don't think that's what it's doing, but the fourth view here is another view uh, that, that was referred to in church history. And some people thought, well, this is the birth of Jesus. It's just talking about the natural, physical birth of Jesus, which involves water and blood. In fact, when women go into labor, and they're describing when they went to the hospital or they delivered their child, they will often say that it began with my water what? My water broke, right? Water's a fluid. Water doesn't break unless you freeze it and break it. Okay? So that's a misnomer. It's, a, it's an incorrect statement. But what they're describing is they're going into labor. Their uterus uh, is, is effacing and contractions are taking place. And the amniotic sac breaks, which is the, where the amniotic fluid is, comes out, which is primarily water. And of course, in the, the delivery process, you know, there can be blood is involved as well. And this certainly does fit John's emphasis here on incarnation. But I don't think it completely fits what he's saying here uh, about blood. So I don't think that view quite fits either. A fifth view was postulated by the fourth century church scholar and theologian Augustine that the water and the blood speak of the lymph fluid and the blood that poured out from Jesus in his side on the cross. Remember when the Roman soldier went up to check if he was dead and poked him with the spear? 
uh, and they were ex, you know, experts at, at executing people through crucifixion. They knew what their body signs were telling them, and they were just verifying that Jesus was dead. So they poked him. And John 19, verse 34 says, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, upon death and the beginning of the decomposition of the body, the body will bloat up. And so the lymph fluid will be stored up. And obviously, someone hanging on a cross that gets poked like that, that lymph fluid, which is an orangish kind of water, comes pouring out, and blood would pour out from the pierced dead corpse. Jesus, it says in Isaiah 53, was pierced for our transgressions. And I think this is getting a little closer to the truth of what John is getting at here, but I don't think it completely represents what this passage is referring to. The sixth view, in which I think is the correct one, was postulated by an early church father named Tertullian. And it's the position that the majority of conservative biblical scholars today hold. And it represents that the water and the blood symbolize the events of Jesus' incarnational ministry. And thus they summar summarize the whole of his ministry. The water represents his baptism in the Jordan River. And I think most of you would probably agree with me that when someone as a believer is baptized, they step forward in obedience to Christ. And it's a witness, it's a testimony of their faith in Christ and their desire to, uh, to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism, to be obedient to him. And even those who officiate at the baptism are doing doing that in an act of following the Lord because he instructed us to go make disciples and to baptize them, okay? So there, there's, there's this fellowship element. That's why some people like to refer to baptism as fellowship. It's fellowship. Well, what happened when Jesus was baptized? The Spirit of God descended upon him, and that's when his, the, the Heavenly Father spoke. And there was this testimony, there was this witness, this is my Son whom I love, in whom in him I am well pleased. So the water represents the baptism of Jesus Christ. And the blood represents the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross, where he gave his life and exchanged it for ours. Because it says in the Bible, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. So it's because Jesus gave his life, he shed his blood, that we can have remission of sin. So baptism and the cross embody the work and the person of Jesus. Now, keep in mind as well here that the Apostle John is having to address in these early churches the onset of a heresy known as Gnosticism. And these false teachers were the ones who were promoting that Jesus became the divine Son of God at his baptism and not before. Now, think about this for a moment. I have a son in this world, a one and only son, Nathan Laverne Nelson. He also happens to be a credentialed Evangelical Covenant Church pastor. Now, I do not believe, nor have I ever said, that when Pastor Nathan received his first ministry license back in 2013 from the Evangelical Covenant Church, that Nathan, now you became my son. I didn't, never said that. He's my partner. Uh, he's a fellow credentialed covenant pastor, but I never said that and have never believed that. Now you became my son. No, he has been my son from the very beginning. In fact, in utero and at birth. And these false teachers were trying to say that Jesus only became the divine son of God at his baptism when God said, this is my beloved son in whom, in, you know, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And these false teachers also believed that the divine son of God, left Jesus before he actually died 
on the cross. And in this passage, I think John completely blows that false teaching right out of the water. Jesus, the Son of God, was baptized in the flesh. And God testified to that. The Holy Spirit testified to that. And this same Jesus, the Son of God, died in the flesh on the cross. In fact, John's gospel clearly points this out, that Jesus was sovereign even over his death on the cross. Listen to what John 19 verse 30 says. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He was sovereign even over his death. He was God even over his death. Jesus was fully the son of God at his baptism and at his death on the cross. So we have the witness of the water. We have the witness of the blood. And we're also told we have the witness of the pneuma, the spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit of God is now called upon to take the witness stand. Okay? The Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit has been there through all of Jesus' earthly life, ministry, his conception, and his birth. And the testimony in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, is that it is impossible for God to lie. The Holy Spirit takes the witness stand. Now, as human beings, we trust human testimony, but we don't trust it completely. That's why we have laws against perjury, and that's why we have, you know, penalties for people that continually, uh, you know, issue, uh, you know, bad checks. Or, you know, that's why we have in the court of law uh, an oath that has to be sworn before someone gives testimony. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? If so, please say I do. I once testified uh, in, in the court of law. Uh, and during the trial, and the accused sitting down there behind the table yelled out during my testimony, He's lying! He's lying! And the judge took control of the courtroom. Once he got things settled down and he chastised the person who spoke up, he turned to me and he said, You do realize that you're under oath, don't you? And I said, Yes. And these are the exact things that this person told me. Well, you have to understand there is no need for God to swear an oath. Do you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so I hope you got? As the Holy Spirit comes to the witness stand to testify. And keep in mind that with God taking this, the stand, the stakes could not be higher regarding the witness about Jesus. Verses 10 through 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts his testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. You're lying! You're lying! Because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Friends, correct thinking about Jesus and having the right belief about him is truly a matter of life and death. And how do we know if we're of the faith? How do we know if we're truly Christians, if we're truly saved? We know that we're saved from our sin 
and the coming judgment for that sin if we accept by faith the testimony of God through the Holy Spirit as revealed in God's word concerning Jesus the Christ. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Would you pray with me, please? God, our Father, we thank you for this powerful passage of Scripture that we've been allowed to study today and look at. And God, to recognize the testimony that you have validated throughout church history and that you have given and passed on to even humble folks like us in rural northwestern Wisconsin, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and that you make it possible for us to believe in Jesus and uh, to know him and to have the assurance of having life eternal and the assurance of having our sins forgiven. Oh, God, it's amazing to think of what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And, Lord, I pray that we can live out uh, that faith, you know, recognizing it isn't just a, a no-strings-attached situation, but because of our love, because of the belief you've placed in our hearts, that we'd be inspired to live faithfully for you, obediently for you, lovingly for you in this world. And that's a witness, a testimony that this world continues and needs so desperately to see. So I ask for that, God, in Jesus' name.